Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. He destroyed my home, murdered my people and my king. He must be punished. For Ardenly. Welcome to Bastion. To the good people of Revendreth, Maltraxus must stay true. If we fail, the Shadowlands will fall. Light, save my soul. Welcome to the World of Warcraft Survival Guide for Shadowlands, our upcoming expansion in which you'll explore the uncharted realms of death beyond Azeroth. In this video, we'll take a look at the new features and changes coming in Shadowlands, including five new zones, customizable legendary items, covenants, a new arena, and Torghast, Tower of the Damned. After cleansing Azeroth of the remaining vestiges of the old god Nizoth, we again find ourselves in grave circumstances. The fallen Horde Warchief Sylvanas has sundered the veil between worlds, and Azeroth's greatest heroes are pulled into the Shadowlands. Here, you'll confront the wonders and horrors of the afterlife with newfound abilities, as its inhabitants deal with the consequences of the Banshee Queen's actions. Adventurers who are level 48 or higher will receive a summon to meet with High Lord Bolvar Fordragon in Icecrown and kick off the events that take them into the Shadowlands. When you go to the other side, you'll discover five new ethereal zones. The gleaming fields of Bastion, the war-torn necrotic wastes of Maldraxxus, the twilight forests of Ardenweald, the gothic spires of Revendreth, and the hopeless depths of the Maw. As you travel through each realm, you'll meet memorable characters along the way and help the ruling Four Covenants restore order to the Shadowlands. Upon reaching max level, you'll be able to pledge yourself to either the Kyrian, Necrolord, Night Fae, or Venthyr Covenant. Each Covenant offers its champions two special abilities, a signature ability and a class ability that will change your playstyle in a significant way. Covenants will also provide you with other powers and cosmetic rewards that can be unlocked through a Covenant campaign, an epic storyline unique to the faction, along with access to your Covenant Sanctum, a hall only accessible to players who have forged a pact with its rulers. When you join a Covenant, you'll be able to undergo an ancient ritual called Soul Binding and merge your soul with its mightiest members. By doing so, your character harnesses their power, gaining access to formidable bonuses. Over time, you can unlock new tiers of power and even switch soulbinds when strategy demands it. 
your Soulbinds can further empower your abilities with Conduits, which can be earned by completing content throughout the Shadowlands. Each Covenant also offers a special activity only available to their members. Kyrians will test their metal in the Path of Ascension. Necrolords get to build their own abomination. Nightfae can tend to a Celestial Garden, and the Venthyr will host an elite invite-only gala and defend it from devious party crashers in the Ember Court. At the heart of the Maw stands Torghast, Tower of the Damned, a prison for the most vile souls in existence. Inspired by roguelikes, this highly replayable instance has an ever-shifting interior that offers a different experience each time you enter, and with each floor cleared, you'll face stronger foes and gain new powers to take on the mounting challenges that the Jailer has waiting for you. Vanquishing Torghast's unhallowed halls will reward you with crafting materials, which can be turned into powerful, legendary gear by the Runecarver, whose power forged infamous instruments of death throughout the ages. Completing content within Shadowlands will give you access to new powers, which you can select between to further empower your gear, allowing you to customize each piece. Shadowlands also brings a new PvP arena, the Empyrean Domain, where you'll do battle in the skies above Bastion and test your skill against equally powerful foes. Wins in PvP will net you honor and conquest currencies, which you can use to purchase PvP gear from a vendor within the new capital city, Oribos. You'll also discover Adventures, a tactical twist on previous expansion's missions, in which you'll use a party of five troops to solve combat puzzles and earn rewards, including pets, mounts, gold, and more. To secure success, you'll need to place your companions strategically on the board to counter threats and squash enemies. You can check in on your adventures on the go with the WoW Companion app. Adventures will unlock after you choose your Covenant at max level. And that's just the beginning. When we next meet, we'll cover Season 1 content for PvP, Mythic Keystone Dungeons, and the new raid, Castle Nathria. Keep an eye on WorldOfWarcraft.com for more details on upcoming content. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you in the Shadowlands.
Queen appreciates your allegiance. We are the Forsaken. Grand Nagus. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Cops One Radio. Poor Nathanos. In the end, to run the court up with him. Well, I guess he got his wish to join our Dark Lady. I hope. I think. Maybe. Anyway, we'll see what this all ends up in. There have been some hints that he might show up again. I'm just wondering what model they're going to use for him. If they're going to like go back and use the original model. Because if you've read the short story about him, you'll know that the body that Sylvanas has used lately to get the improved Nathanos was the body of one of his relatives, I think his cousin or something, if I remember correctly. Yeah, maybe they'll go back to using, for the spirit that is, using the image of his original self, but we'll see. Yeah, as I said, welcome to the show. I have quite a bit of content for you today, mostly revolving around Shadowlands, obviously. What I have for you today is the following. You've heard the Blizzard animated shorts trailer and the Shadowlands survival guide. 
as well as Charm's Nathanos song already. Coming up is Nobles, the story so far as we go into Shadowlands. So like a low recap of what happened so far. Then we have some more music from Cavo and Charm. We have So So Breezy's The Shadowlands Guide to Leveling and Endgame Preparation. And we have Hiromar Dex's Top 10 Abilities Removed Quickly for Being Too Powerful in World of Warcraft. I put this in because I wanted to have something that has been removed in the game contrary to all the unpruning that we got with Shadowlands where we got all the abilities that have reappeared for our various classes and I thought this might be an interesting list of stuff that that disappeared for a different reason other than pruning. And then to end it we have Matt's season show with his thoughts on Shadowlands and since he is mostly or has been mostly a classic focused streamer, player, YouTuber, I find it interesting especially his takes since they come from a different mindset I think sometimes with him setting different standards in a way with him comparing it as others do as well and rightfully so to something that was totally different and still the the same game in name to see how far the game has come from classic or vanilla whatever you want to call it to now with the borrowed power and all that stuff that I'm not going to get into because this would be a rant of epic proportions and uh I just want to leave you with the stuff that is explanatory and preparational for you guys and not having me rant about something that we cannot change. At least this is not the time. It might be the place, but it's not the time yet to talk about systems that so many want changed. We'll get to that eventually, just not now. With that said, here is Noble with the story so far as we go into the Shadowlands. Hello everyone! The new expansion, Shadowlands, it is nearly upon us. So I wanted to make a video, prepare you for what is to come. Give you spoiler-free explanation as to what happened so far, things that might be handy to know while playing the game. So that is what we're going to do today keeping it completely spoiler-free. That leaves me with very little to talk about. I'm only going to use information that Blizzard themselves has used to promote the game. So information from BlizzCon, the WoW website, the Afterlife shorts, stuff like that. Stuff that's available to everybody and gives me something to explain to you as to what has happened, what is going on, and where we're going to go. Now the Eternal Veil screams, torn asunder by her the Shadowlands, that is the afterlife in Warcraft. You die, your spirit is picked up and brought over to be judged by the Arbiter. It's kinda like the Sorting Hat, the Arbiter in Oribus, your future capital city. It determines in which domain amongst the infinite possibilities of the Shadowlands your soul belongs. 
based on how you lived your life, you are sorted. Yet, if you were a naughty soul, an evil one perhaps, then you will have to pay for your deeds in life. Failing to do so, it will earn you a one-way ticket into the Maw, where no one ever escapes. This would be Warcraft's version of Hell, ruled over by the Jailer. Eternal torment for those poor, unfortunate souls. That's how it's supposed to go anyways. But sometime during the Legion time period, this machine of death, it got broken. And instead of the souls being sorted, distributed amongst the different realms, taking with them their anima, their life experience, the power that keeps the people and the zones of the Shadowlands going, instead of all of that being distributed, it's now just being funneled directly into the Maw, regardless of how you lived your life. Which of course translates into power. Power into the loving embrace of the Jailer. Now it's still uncertain as of yet what exactly broke it, when exactly this happened. But broken it definitely is. And that in turn has had quite an effect on the Shadowlands, which we'll get to in just a moment. Now say that the Machine of Death wasn't broken, then there are other options to end up in. Did you live your life in service to others? Does your soul call to continuing this path even in death? then Bastion is for you, home of the Kyrian Covenant. Under the leadership of the Archon, you will sit around all day, meditate and reflect, forget the life that you once lived to fulfill your next role, maybe even ferry the souls of the dead yourself. And by forgetting who you used to be, you'll be able to do this without any judgments. The Shadowlands Afterlife video for Bastion it shows us that Ufer the Lightbringer was deemed worthy of going to Bastion. In life, he was a mighty paladin, member of the Order of the Silver Hands, the Alliance, and tutor to Prince Arthas Menefil as he too became a paladin. But Arthas's path, it turned dark as the plague spread across the lands of Lordaeron. Forces behind the scenes, forces like the Lich King, Kelfuzad, and the Dreadlords, they guided his road of damnation. Friends and loved ones, Ufer included, they told him to stop. But Prince Arthas' pursuit of vengeance, it led him to the cold land of Northrends, where he would pick up Frostmourne, did claim his vengeance, but also became an agent of the Lich King. Back home, he murdered his father and grounded the kingdom into dust. His given task was to resurrect Kelfuzad as a lich and to safely move the remains to Silvermoon and to Sunwell. The power that they were going to need to do this, they were going to need a very special urn. Give me the urn and I'll make sure you die quickly. The urn holds your father's ashes, Arthas. What, were you hoping to piss on them one last time before you left his kingdom to rot? <laughs> I didn't know what it held. Nor does it matter. I'll take what I came for one way or another. I dearly hope that there's a special place in hell waiting for you, Arthas. We may never know, Uther. I intend to live forever.
appears that the light did answer his prayer, as part of his soul was saved from being sucked up by Frostmourne. Wounded, Ufer goes off into the Shadowlands, gets sorted into Bastion, but the wounds inflicted in life, it prevents him from moving forward on the path. Devos, the one that's guiding him, examines the wounds and figures out that Arthas has the power of the Maw in hand, which is absolutely crazy, as nothing is supposed to escape it. Ufer's memories, it show her that the path gives to them by the Archon, that it's flawed, as if he had walked it, if he had given up his memories, who he used to be, they would have never figured out that some part of the Maw has escaped into the mortal realm, but their Archon... It refuses to listen to devils, so she takes matters into her own hands. Uther, the time of your ascension has come. I thought I was not ready. Do you wish to see him punished? I do. Then prepare yourself. The moment he falls, we will claim him. And so, when Arthas the Lich King was defeated by Heroes of Azeroth at the end of Wrath the Lich King, Ufer and Devils, they were waiting for him. I see. Only darkness before me. Burying his soul from Azeroth to the Shadowlands but not to present it for judgment before the Arbiter. He is tossed right into the Maw to enjoy some delicious torment. And the consequences of the actions in the shorts will play out further in Bastion. But perhaps your life was one in pursuit of power. It be physically, mentally, whatever. Meldrexus will be your place to go home to the Necrolord Covenant. This is a zone ruled over by the Primus, and you get to join one of the five houses, learn new skills to defend the Shadowlands from threats both within and without. The Meldrexus Afterlife video, it shows us Draka, Thrall's mother, that ends up here. In life, she was not a warrior born, but she was a warrior made, going through trials and tribulations to earn her strength. Now her death, it came when she and Duratan, exposed to corruption of the first hordes, assassins took them out, left their baby to die in the wilds. That would not be Thrall's future, of course. Well, his mother, she joined the House of Eyes and learned the skills of a master spy. One-fifth of Maldraxxus wiped out. It's hard to believe they could be so careless. Perhaps they weren't. No matter what happens now, Maldraxxus must stay true to its purpose. For if we fail in our duty, the Shadowlands will fall. Those threats from within that I mentioned earlier, they're hard at work at overtaking Maldraxxus. Unity amongst the houses is no longer a thing, as the House of Plagues, it's already been destroyed. And the House of Eyes, it blows up as Draka rides away. She now joins the House of the Chosen, led by Margrave Crexus. They're going to need our aid to uncover what is going on, and make sure that Maldraxxus stays true to its purpose. And most of all, a protector of Maldraxxus. Are you perhaps a spirit tightly connected to nature? Then Ardenweald will be the area to hang out, home to the Nightfae Covenant. The Winter Queen is going to look over you, as you might even regenerate and return to the Emerald Dream, might even come back to life. 
This zone has been described as the winter and autumn to the emerald dreams spring and summer. The Arnawild Afterlife video, it shows us that the wild god Ursuk, it ended up here after we were forced to put him down in Legion. They do try to tend to the spirits, but as I mentioned before, the souls are no longer being properly sorted. There is an anima shortage and they have to make hard choices. They need to decide who lives and who dies, which groves, which spirits still get a chance at rebirth, and which ones are going to be lost forever. Your heart is pure. I will honor your choice. One last time, you serve the wilds. You will not be forgotten. Forgive me, friend. Maybe you've been a very naughty spirit and must pay for your sins in life. The good people of Revendreft's, they will welcome you with open arms and help you repent home to the Venfir Covenant. Sire Denephrius leads the kingdom of sinners and saints until your soul is properly cleansed. To the good people of Revendreft, it is with optimism that I address you today. Though these are challenging times as it is in Ardenweald and the other zones of the Shadowlands. Revendreft, it's dealing with a drought. Yes, we still have our old reliables, our workhorses. Yet I fear they will not be enough. Both the rich and poor, they must sacrifice all that they can to keep operations going. But not Sire Denefries, of course, not those close to him. Now failing in Revendrefts, refusing to pay for your sins, that will earn you a one-way ticket into the Maw, where you can keep Arthas company. That is the Shadowlands, that is where the next expansion is going to take us. Now for how we're going to get there. The pathway into the Shadowlands. We can thank Sylvanas Windrunner for that. She died defending her home from Arthas and the Scourge during Warcraft 3 as they made the way to the Sunwell to use it and resurrect Kelfuzad. But the High Elf would not enjoy a blissful afterlife. The fallen prince of Lordaeron ripped her soul back and turned her into a banshee. Eventually, she managed to regain control. She reclaimed her body, but she failed to exact sweet vengeance. Arvis would go on to merge with the Lich King, chill on the top of Icecrown, while Sylvanas she took in the Forsaken, others that also regained control and joined the Horde to set out on her quest of making Arvis pay. A quest completed at the end of Wrath the Lich King. Arvis. He was defeated, but there must always be a Lich King. It was Bull for Four Dragon that placed the Helm of Domination on his head and took on the job of Jailer of the Damned, making sure that the Scourge was being kept under control. But for Sylvanas though, she saw no reason to continue her cursed undead life. She wanted it all to end, so she let herself fall from the top of Ice Crown on the Serenite Spikes down below. Instead of ending up in a peaceful afterlife, 
she found herself in a realm of eternal torments, most likely the Maw. This is where she got in touch with the Jailer. This is the moment where they started to work together. While their ultimate goals and plans, they're still uncertain at this point. What is definitely clear is that she got quite a power boost from joining the Jailer's Covenant. And with the nine Velkid at her side, she now creates her own brand new Forsaken. Have you given any thought to what this means, Sylvanas? What difference is there between you and the Lich King now? Isn't it obvious, Warchief? I serve the Horde. Watch your clever mouth, bitch! Fast forward to the Legion expansion. On the Broker Shore, the Horde and Alliance, they lost the leaders to the Burning Legion. Whereas Anduin Rin, he took over from his father for the Alliance. Vol'jin's choice of new Warchief, that would be... The spirits have granted me clarity. A vision. They whisper a name. Many will not understand. But you must powder the shadows and lead. You must be Vol'jin is dead. Who among you will help me avenge him? While taking on the Legion, Sylvanas also focused their efforts on Stormheim. A bargain was made with Helia, ruler of Helheim. Now it's uncertain what she wanted from Sylvanas, but we do know that she provided the Banshee Queen with a soul cage. This in turn was used to try and subjugate Eir, a Titan Watcher, with the ability to create more Valkyr. Submit. The Valkyr are mine. those nine that joined her after her dip from Ice Crown. They've been taking her place in hell whenever she died. More Valkyr could potentially mean more bonus lives to stay off that fate, or at the very least, just more to empower her troops. Either way, those dreams and plans were shattered by Greymane and the Alliance. And then, the story took us all the way to the planet of Argus, where we joined the Pantheon and imprisoned their dark brother Sargeras, but not before he took his mighty sword and pierced the world, causing massive devastation to Azeroth and the slumbering titan spirit inside of it. She is hurting, and all across the world, a brand new resource pops up, namely Azerite. This will change everything. A new weapon. The Alliance and the Horde get to use to murder each other. And keep in mind that by this point in time, that machine of death is broken. So anyone that now dies, it will end up in the Maw, empowering the Jailer and empowering Sylvanas. Winning this war or losing it, it doesn't really matter to the Warchief. She will still come out victorious. And at first, the Horde actually agrees with her plan of conquest. Saurfang himself is convinced to lead the charge into Darkshore. But when Sylvanas unexpectedly decides to burn down Teldrassil, cause the genocide of the Night Elves, voices, slowly but surely, they start to rise up. Her way of leading the Horde isn't right. She's taken him down a dark path. And if you played Mr. Pandaria, you got a good idea as to what happened next. More and more dark stuff happens. More and more voices rising up. 
Tyrande eventually invoked the Night Warrior ritual to give herself a power boost and kick the Horde out of Darkshore. The Spirit of Uljin was asked what he was thinking, appointing Sylvanas as Warchief, and we followed the Shadowhunter in uncovering that there's more going on there. Talia Fordragon, daughter to Bolvar Fordragon, is found in Kaltiris, but not informed about the fate of her father. The Alliance and Hordes eventually realize that working together is much better than fighting each other. Combining their forces, they rise up against the Warchief, as Orgrimmar makes ready for another siege, only this time it would be settled in Makkora. You cannot kill hope. You tried and tell yourself. You failed. Hope remains. You set us to kill each other at Lordaeron. You failed. Here we stand. You just keep failing. The Horde will endure. The Horde is strong. The Horde is nothing! That Saurfang knew he couldn't win, yet still claimed victory by outing Sylvanas' true feelings towards the Hordes. She vapes out of there, towards her true plans, leaving the Forsaken without a leader and the Horde without a warchief. This time, they decide that a council will take over. All the different races amongst the Horde represented by the leader, all voices will be heard, while Lily of Us takes over leadership of the Forsaken. Kalia Menafil, sister of Arthas Menafil, has been resurrected in the light. She takes care of the recently resurrected by the Banshee Queen, while also following Lillian around. With victory earned, the Alliance and Horde once more try to go towards peace. But not all is so easily forgotten or forgiven. Not while the Black Moon still cries out for vengeance. Not until the Horde has answered for its treachery. Those dark powers granted by Elune are coursing through Tyrande, the Night Warrior, and she will not rest until she's claimed the Banshee Queen's head. Meanwhile, Sylvanas has traveled to Icecrown Citadel and challenges Bolvar to a 1v1.
set us all free. By ripping apart the helm of domination, Sylvanas shatters the sky above Icecrown, the veil between this world and the next. The path into the Shadowlands is open, where our next adventure awaits. While she had a battle with Bolvar, Nefanos and some of her forces, they were sent out on a special mission to take care of Bonsamdi, one of the forces that the Banshee Queen expects to stand in the way of her ultimate plans, whatever those might be. That mission, due to the intervention of Talanji and the Horde, it fails. Nefanos, he has to disappoint his beloved, who tells him to go, expecting him to find a means to prevent the Loa's meddling. He would return to his home in life, the Meristet, while she was ready for the next step, to take the path in front of her, for power sub power, and she would have more of it, not for its own sake, but to wield it. The unjust ladder of their lives must be dismantled, not rung by rung, but all at once, all of it. She had been the plaything of a self-righteous cosmos long enough. The Jailer too understood what must be done. has come to claim this world. The undead scourge is swarming in numbers not seen since the days of Wrath the Lich King. Amidst the chaos, Enduin, Bane, Thrall and Jaina, they've been taken, while Tyrande and her night warrior powers, they were able to lay waste to the dark manifestations the Banshee had sent for her. As the days of old, the Knights of the Ebonblade and the Arden Crusade, they stand ready to fight against the relentless Scourge. Even some familiar faces cross the veil and make a return an Ice Crown. Faces like Blood Queen Lanafell, for example, or Falric and Marwyn, or Professor Putricide. Good news, everyone! 
Now Nefanos is not exactly hiding from the world by staying at his home, and it doesn't take long for our forces to track him down. Just like it was in the days of classic, heroes are asked to go to the Plaguelands and deal with the Blightcaller. Well, well, well. If it isn't Azeroth's mightiest champions. Congratulations. You've managed to track me to the most unlikely of places, my very own home. Seeking retribution for all the bad, bad things I've done, I suppose. How frightfully predictable. I have been waiting a long time for this. Let's get on with it, shall we? All this grows tiresome! Give me a real challenge! Ah, come on! Is this the best you can do? <laughs> oh! she sends Nefanos right to his beloved. That must have felt good for Toronto. Her road to vengeance is still a long one though, as Sylvanas Windrunner is waiting out there, beyond the Shattered Veil, in the Shadowlands. That's where our journey is going to take us next. But for now, you're up to speed on the story so far, leaving us with a tenuous peace between the Alliance and the Horde. Sylvanas, an ally to the Jailer, one of many, the Jailer tried to break out of the Maw, 
A drought of anima that plagues the Shadowlands, causing all kinds of problems for those that call it their home. Heroes are going to follow the Banshee Queen and meet the different factions within the Shadowlands. Uncover the hidden plots and schemes shrouded by shadow, sign up with a covenant of their choosing, and build their renown. Earn respect and rewards while trying to save the Shadowlands and the Warcraft universe itself. Now I think that's about all I can say without diving into spoilers. So for now, thank you very much for watching everyone. Say that you want more details on all the things that we talked about today, then check out the delayed wild article in the description down below. You could also decide to subscribe if you like my videos. And of course for those that have asked, we are going to cover Shadowlands every little bit of it. That will be for next time though, so have a wonderful day. And until next time, see ya! I hear the jailer's lonely Split apart in the sky Shattering the bridge of death and life Sylvanas, how could you? Oh, tell me, what did you do? Nightmare, the denizens Screaming from the depths, no one hearing them Once you're thrown inside You can't run away, you can't hide no judge, no arbiter rule Jailer has his laws in you There's nothing you can do, no All the souls fall in the mold Cause when Sylvanas calls You will not flee Their population starts to rise Before you think twice your soul is trapped and his to keep I hear the jailer's lonely Heroes, are they coming? Helping to escape, they know nothing What a hopeless request There's no wind, there's no rest Your world soul isn't strong enough Head to Ouroboros, are they saving us? False hope has plagued our lives But if you stay behind, there's No judge, no arbiter rule Jailer has his claws in you There's nothing you can do, no All the souls fall in the mold Cause when Sylvanas calls You will not flee them Population starts to rise Before you think twice Your soul is trapped and here's to keep Hello, it's Sol with a video to help you efficiently progress into Shadowlands Endgame in the first 15 days. For those of you who are familiar with my guides, this is less about speed and more about making sure that you're making the right moves without wasting too much time or energy. This guide is going to be split into a few sections, including leveling, the two weeks of preseason content, and leveling alts. 
By the end of this guide, you'll have developed your first soulbinds, picked up more than a few conduits, and are ready for Season 1 with minimum effort. As you might already know, your first time leveling is going to be an on-rails experience. Everyone is going into the Maw, and then to Bastion, and Maldraxxus, and Ardenweald, and finally Revendreth in that order. The last time everyone ended up in the same zone was back in Mr. Pandaria some 50 years ago, and that was a bit rocky. So prepare yourself mentally for congestion, chaos, and mayhem that isn't your fault. Otherwise, let's strategize some best practices, whether you're at the front or the back of the pack. Accessing Shadowlands Endgame requires completing the entire leveling questline. These quests are marked with a special marker like this, so that saves me a lot of time. Just follow the quests and your quest log will keep you on track. Another useful thing, waypoints have been added in this expansion and they work pretty darn well. Like in previous expansions, you're not forced to progress through dungeons to get through the campaign and I don't recommend doing so because, well, that's just lost time. As someone leveling day one of the expansion, you'll be playing a game of either being in front of or behind a ball of players. The last thing you want to do is be stuck with dozens of other people trying to do the same things you are. Despite my confidence in sharding and fighting back bottlenecks, problems are bound to happen. Here's a really early leveling tip. During the introduction that takes you into the Maw, you'll often be accompanied by one or more NPCs. Sometimes they follow you, sometimes it's an escort. I advise marking these NPCs with a raid marker, just in case you get separated. Other players on the same quest will have differently named NPCs, but this helps to clear out the clutter, just in case. In general, if you think that you're in front of the pack, I would advise you to only focus on completing the main story, and don't get distracted by anything else. No rares, no extra objectives, no squirrels to take you off course. There's a small risk that you can complete quests so quickly that you end up running into a bottleneck. At this stage in the beta, you need to be level 60 to even complete the campaign. Just in case you progress faster than you level, I suggest that while in Revendreth, the fourth zone, pick up all of the side quests that you see. This isn't too much of a spoiler, but you should be level 60 by the time you reach Sinfall, this location here, and you're given a quest to explore this underground area. If you're not very close to 60, backtrack and complete some side quests and objectives in the zone and then return here once you're leveled up. So what if you end up getting stuck with the pack anyway? If you're running into issues with tagging mobs or clicking on things because of people, don't fret too much. In this case, you may just want to let yourself fall behind a little bit and do side quests instead. This might sound like a complete waste of time, but unlike the main story, side quests award reputation, which you may be interested in for endgame. Revendreth in particular includes a few zone features that require side questing to unlock as well. Shadowlands has gone back to the days of requiring reputation to unlock certain crafting recipes, but your mileage will vary depending on if those professions and recipes apply to you. There is the question of whether you should level in war mode or not. Because of the quest requirement, the biggest benefit of leveling in war mode would not be for the experience bonus, but the possibility, the chance, that with fewer people in war mode, the leveling experience would be less congested. Of course, many people will opt into war mode for that very reason, which could lead to that congestion. The start of Shadowlands will no doubt be the scariest, with tons of players being funneled into the Maw, multiple escort quests, and other potential bottlenecks. 
don't take my word for it, but I've noticed that the starting experience employs what kind of looks like aggressive sharding, which means some areas are allowed to be more busy than others, all for the sake of reducing bottlenecks. The best I could say is that personally, I'm going to start off in war mode and then turn it off as soon as the going gets tough. I'm going to have my hearthstone set to my capital as a safety measure so that even if the starting experience is awful in war mode, I can run away and turn off war mode, then return to the maw the same way that I came in and go from there. After the starting experience, you visit Ouroboros, the Shadowlands hub for the first time. Here you'll go through a lengthy RP experience and then set up a portal to return to Stormwind or Orgrimmar. This is another opportunity for you to turn war mode on real quick and then test the waters. Just don't backtrack too much for the sake of experimenting because that too is going to take up some time. As always, I suggest that you play in a spec or role that you feel the most agile in for questing. That means a specialization that lets you use lots of instant abilities for mob tagging if and when you're in a competitive area. It also means a spec that you're comfortable with and has a good mix of survivability and power. Using your most favorite or efficient character makes it so that your alts can take advantage of leveling sooner, especially in the Threads of Fate, which I will talk about later. Also consider that as you're questing, you'll get a chance to test drive the four different Covenant class and signature abilities that you'll later commit to. Now's as good a time as any to try them out. To summarize leveling, just go hard on campaign quests because they're required no matter how fast you're actually leveling. Utilize War Mode as a way to avoid crowds if possible. If you're stuck with the pack and you can't pull ahead, hang back and do some side quests for reputation. So congratulations on the easy part. You followed the quests and you are now level 60. As it's your first character, you're going to be funneled into a tutorial chapter that will fill you in on the basics of Endgame, which again, it's going to save me a little bit of work, thank you Blizzard, but basically in this quest line you'll get an introduction and context on covenants and how they work. You'll check out world quest content, as well as covenant callings and how those work. You'll collect anima, save a few souls, and then finally be introduced to soulbinds and conduits. It's not a very long process, but it would wear down anyone who's interested in running a lot of alts, and fortunately, you only need to go through this once. I'll explain later. During this tutorial, you'll be asked to choose the first upgrade to your Covenant Sanctum, which provides you with all sorts of perks and side activities, but in this guide you're focused on the upcoming PvP, Raid, and Mythic Plus season, so you won't be doing much Sanctum restoration for now. But you do need to make a choice here. If you somehow have a bunch of anima this early on, then you have choices, but you'll be shoved into choosing the third option from the left, the one that unlocks the mission table. This gives you the biggest bang for your buck, unlocking a source to farm a bit more anima. By the time this tutorial chapter is fully complete, your Renown level, which is the mechanism that paces your development, is going to be at rank 2. World Quests and Covenant Callings are now available. You have the world at your fingertips, so what's next? Let's break down your most urgent needs. You need Renown to develop your Soulbinds and progress deeper into the Covenant campaign. You do need conduits, specifically the ones that are most useful to you, but it's helpful to get everything you can. And you need Soul Ash from Torghast so you can make legendaries. But first, you need some basic max level gear to get stuff done, and world content is your most readily available source. Pick up all the quests in your sanctum, each and every one. This is what you should have, a quest to return to Oribos. This will eventually open up Torghast, and you'll get to this in your first week, so hold on to this. 
You should also have two weekly quests, one to collect anima and another to save souls from the Maw. These will repeat each week, and you'll always do these to stay caught up on Renown. And you should have three Covenant Calling quests. These are marked with a blue quest marker similar to the campaign. So let's talk Covenant Callings. Completing Covenant Callings will get you a sizable amount of gold, anima, sometimes gear, and sometimes conduits. Covenant Callings can come in different varieties and can be done through solo or group content. One might ask you to fill up a bar by completing outdoor content, but dungeon content may also give you credit. Another may just ask you to complete a number of world quests or find treasures. While you're out there completing callings, keep an eye out for world quests that offer gear upgrades or conduits and complete them all. The gear is important for your overall throughput, of course, but also to help qualify you for queuing up for dungeons in case you need the assistance. To queue for max level normal dungeons, you need an item level of 144. To queue for all heroic difficulty dungeons, you need an item level of 155. Technically, you need an item level of 80 to queue up for any dungeon, but you should be fine. If not, then uh, I'm not sure what to tell you. Anyway, you can go at this in any order, but finish all three Covenant Callings. Return to the Maw and find five souls, just like you did in the tutorial, but just in case you're watching this and you have no idea what that means, souls are just kind of out there in the Maw, sometimes in cages, sometimes stuck inside rocks, sometimes just wandering around. Break them out, click on them to get credit, and then you're done. Just return to your sanctum. Once you've turned in all of your calling quests, you should have enough anima to turn in the weekly quest for anima, and if not, complete a few world quests for it and that should finish it off. Once this is all turned in, you should have a renown level of 4, and unless something changes from now until launch, you should be at the renown cap for the week. But you should still have one more quest, the one that leads you to Torghast and your unending hunger for soul ash. Go ahead and start this questline, it's pretty straightforward. It leads you to the Maw, and then to Torghast, and out again, and it gives you a follow-up quest to find the Rune Carver, who will be your source for legendaries. Continue this quest to the point where you're asked to dive back into Torghast and gather up Soul Ash, and then get comfortable folks, cause you're gonna be in Torghast for a while. Here's a very thin crash course on Torghast. Each week, there are two randomly selected cell blocks or levels to choose from, and you want to clear both at the highest difficulty for the maximum reward. In each cell block, you climb six floors full of bad guys and power-ups, and then on the sixth floor, you put your powers to the test against a powerful boss. Killing it will award you with the Soul Ash. Torghast has eight layers or difficulties, and the higher the difficulty you climb, the more rewards you get. The twist is that this is your first time in Torghast. In order to reach the highest level difficulty, you need to complete every difficulty before it in order. So to max out your Soul Ash, in this first week you need to climb all 8 difficulties to unlock the highest difficulty, and then complete that for the maximum reward for that week. You can then climb the other cell block at layer 8 right away, because thankfully the difficulties and unlocks are shared, and you're rewarded all of the soul ash from the previous layers even though you didn't complete them. This is going to get you very close to completing the soul ash quest, and you'll return here next week for what will be a much faster series of climbs. So to summarize, here's what you should be doing in week 1 of Shadowlands. Complete all of the quests in your sanctum to get to renown level 4. Unlock the highest difficulty you can in Torghast, and obtain the maximum amount of Soul Ash you can. That's going to mean a minimum of 9 successful climbs. 
Those are the non-negotiables, but there is plenty more that you can do. If you're lacking on gear at any point, you can scour for gear from world quests or battlegrounds or farming regular dungeons. I'm not 100% sure on this, but there may be weekly quests in Oribos to get an item from a specific dungeon that awards reputation, as well as PvP quests for honor and conquest. If those are there, and if they're important to you, then hey, go for it. You can continue the dungeon grind for practice, or if you're determined to move into mythic dungeons quickly, in fact, you might want to check your adventure guide and start targeting conduits from the dungeon journal that, you know, find the things that are most important to you. Or you can start working on alts. The choice is yours. Here's a little something you can do to save time for next week. A new Covenant calling spawns every day, just like emissaries. You can bank callings for next week. So for example, if your reset is on a Tuesday, pick up the Covenant callings from Sunday and Monday, complete them but don't turn them in until after the reset and after you pick up your weekly renown quest. That way you save a pretty good chunk of time. There is always a chance that this method might not work on live, but give it a shot. It probably won't hurt. So now it's week 2 of Shadowlands, and it's time to get to work, which should be much more relaxed this time. Pick up the two weekly quests, and whatever callings are available, you should definitely have at least one. Go to Torghast and complete your two climbs at the highest difficulty that you can. You should now have more than enough Soul Ash to complete the Runecarver quest and craft your first Legendary if you have all the other materials that you need, so that's probably something I should have mentioned from last week. If you've been exceptional and you cleared layer 8 on both weeks, you may be eligible to upgrade that legendary to a level 2 if you want. Now complete the callings and weekly quests to get to renowned level 6. This should unlock a new chapter of your Covenant campaign, which actually unlocks at renowned level 5. But complete this for another level of renown, which includes an upgrade to your soulbind. Now do some spot checking. Keep an eye out for more conduits and gear upgrades from world quests. Do the weekly dungeon and PvP quests if that's important to you too. You should have the gear to queue for heroics by now, maybe mythics too if people let you in. So two weekly quests, two climbs of Torghast. That about sums up the required maintenance for a single character, period, which personally feels really relaxed. Of course, there's the targeted farming of whatever's important to you, certain gear, a conduit, maybe a legendary recipe, or you can do some Sanctum stuff. But now it's the dawn of the 15th day. Week 3 of Shadowlands has begun as well as Season 1. Reset day might be your first day of raiding, so we gotta act fast. Complete the callings and weekly quests. If you preloaded two calling quests for some fast turn-ins and it works, hey, that'll save a lot of time. Complete your Soul Ash runs as well. With all that done, you should now be at Renown level 9, with a new chapter of the Covenant campaign available. Complete that and you're now at Renown 10. This will get you another Soulbind upgrade, as well as a boost to World Quest rewards, which should help out a bit too. As always, keep an eye out for Conduit upgrades, complete your targeted runs, and congratulations! You've successfully optimized your Soul Ash and Renown gains, and should have a sufficient item level to start Mythic Plus and Raids. Leveling alts in Shadowlands is a much different affair as opposed to your first character. Once you complete the intro and arrive at Oribos, you'll be given a choice between normal leveling and a more open leveling scheme called the Threads of Fate. When you choose this option, there's no going back. You no longer have access to the original Covenant campaign, but the game world opens up. All of the side quests are still intact. World quests are available right from the very start. 
Additional bonus objectives are added, and in each zone, there's a big fill up the bar sort of zone quest that offers a big experience bonus and gear. The world is scaled to your level, and you can choose a covenant right away if you want to, because you could also decide to not make a choice and jump right into gameplay. In this case, your covenant abilities will change depending on the zone or dungeon that you're in. The point here is to work a little bit towards endgame while leveling instead of doing the covenant campaign again. This translates into obtaining extra anima and reputation, and completing quests that unlock zone content. Once your alts reach max level and choose the Covenant, they'll be able to skip Chapter 1 of the Covenant campaign, which is just the tutorial part, up to the point where you hook up with your first Soulbind. Torghast will also be immediately available after completing this chapter, however unlocking the 8 layers of Torghast is not shared across your account. Currently you need to redo the difficulty climb per character. Also keep in mind that any legendary recipes you unlocked before this point are now also available on all of your alts going forward. Despite this being a guide to efficiently prepare for endgame, there's honestly not a lot to do to keep your character in good condition, and there are a lot of built-in protections to mitigate the feeling of falling behind, in case you want to spend time on alts or take a break. The difference between renowned levels does not always translate to a linear gain or loss in throughput. I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it is but it doesn't apply to you, you know, that sort of thing. And renowned catch-ups come from things that you'll be doing anyway. PvP, raids, and dungeons. Unlike island expeditions, you're not exactly going out of your way for an infinite grind. If you're wondering about anima, I do have a different guide for that, but that has very little to do with PvE or PvP endgame. On the flip side, there's no catch-up for Soul Ash, so if you miss your runs or are unable to complete a certain layer difficulty, that's Soul Ash that you'd be missing out on. But before you worry too much though, consider that you get more Soul Ash at lower difficulties than you do at higher difficulties. You're not punished as hard for not being the very best. There are also a lot of steps towards making legendaries on top of obtaining the ash. You need the recipe unlocked, which may or may not even be available until the new season starts. You'll also need the other materials that are made from professions, and that can get pretty expensive. I do recommend getting the Torghast difficulty unlocks out of the way sooner than later, and hopefully Blizzard will make difficulties account-wide by the time you watch this. But your legendary needs might be very demanding, or not so much. Just take a look at your adventure guide and click on the Powers tab. This will show up after Shadowlands launches, so take a look at what you might want and where it drops. And that's going to wrap up your 15 day guide through the start of Shadowlands. I'd like to think that I covered everything, but if not, please leave a comment and tell us what was missed. It'll only serve to help each other out. Please like the video if it was useful and subscribe for more of this and all things Warcraft. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay breezy. Sometimes in World of Warcraft, they'll introduce new abilities or talents to the game, which are too difficult to balance so they just completely alter them to something else, or remove them completely from the game. And in this list, we'll go over which one of these abilities were removed the fastest in this way. And at number 10, we have Void Tendrils, which existed in the game for two expansions before being removed. And this will be absolutely the longest out of all of the abilities on this list since the ability was still in the game for two expansions even after it was heavily altered and nerfed. You see, what Void Tendrils did was it was a very innocuous Priest CC ability, which would root nearby targets to the Priest for the standard PvP duration, or 20 seconds in non-PvP scenarios. And what was unique about these roots 
was that they did not break on damage, like pretty much every single other root in the game, because they had a little gimmick to them. You see, in order to break the roots of Void Tendrils, you had to literally attack and kill the Void Tendrils which were rooting you in place. And since the root was counted as a target you had to defeat, they couldn't be dispelled either, which gave them all kinds of advantages over normal CC abilities. This ability basically removed melee characters from the fight, and allowed you to attack them with Impugny from range, which is kind of why other roots break on damage. They could also be considered a full form of protection, as the melee character would have to attack the Void Tendrils for a bit if they wanted to break them, which meant they had to stop their attack on anything else. The Void Tendrils were also pretty beefy as they had 20% of the priest's health, so it was like attacking through a fifth of a player's health bar in order to get through them. Which meant you couldn't easily one-shot them to get out quickly. And they of course had a short 30 second cooldown, and could affect up to 5 targets, and was one of the first talents a priest could pick up, and could be used alongside other CCs they had. And funny thing is, Void Tendrils were not considered overpowered, because this all happened in Mists of Pandaria, and Mists of Pandaria is when PvP crowd control was at its most power-crept version in the game's history. It's kind of the point in WoW that they never wanted to get to again, with every class having a ridiculous amount of CC. And since it existed in this time period, it kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Only a little bit, because as soon as Warlords of Draenor hit, the ability received all kinds of nerfs. It was moved to a higher level in the talent tree, so you can no longer get it at low levels. They lowered the health of the tendrils in half, and made it so any damage you dealt to the rooted target also dealt damage to the tendrils, so you could no longer attack melee targets caught in it with Impugny. And all of these nerfs made the ability kind of useless, which is why they later buffed the HP of the Void Tendrils by 30%, and then eventually just removed them in Legion, rather than try to deal with this problem of an ability. So really, it only existed in its prime for one expansion, and only lasted as long as it did because everything else was kind of broken in the same time period. And at number 9, we have Glyph of Unleashed Lightning. This was a glyph that only existed for 1.25 expansions before it was just removed and converted into something that was kind of useless. You see, what this glyph did, which was added to the game in late Cataclysm, was simply allow shamans to cast the Lightning Bolt spell while moving. And that's it. It just allowed them to cast their filler spell on the move at the cost of giving up one of their glyph slots. You see, in the time period, a lot of casters were getting a lot of mobility, and this is when they were starting to loosen the rules and abilities that let casters do stuff on the move. And this glyph was kind of an experiment of letting one of the casters use their filler spell all the time on the move just to see how it affected the game. I assume, because Warlocks could also get Kill Jaden's Cunning very shortly after, which also allowed them to cast filler spells while on the move. Hunters were given the ability to cast everything on the move, and priests were given shadowy apparitions, which in their very first form had a super increased chance to spawn if they were on the move. And what do you know? Everybody loved the glyph. Every shaman took it. It was probably one of the most used glyphs ever. Well, that might be a little bit of hyperbole. Most classes only had a handful of good glyphs anyway, but you kind of get the point. It was so good that they had to nerf it a little bit. In Mists of Pandaria, it was changed to actually have a downside to the cast, where it would impose a 5% haste penalty if you cast Lightning Bolt while moving. This was supposed to make it so that you couldn't do full damage while on the move, and had to take some kind of hit for that maneuverability, but it wasn't really enough. 
Shamans kept moving while doing their full rotation, so only had to sit still for a handful of moments. But for the most part, this glyph made them one of the most mobile casters in the game. And since warlocks had to take up one of their precious talent points in order to gain similar mobility, they decided to remove it from the game in patch 5.3, and instead replace it with Glyph of Lightning Shield. And shamans have been sad ever since, and always ask for the return of the Glyph in some way. Warlocks also lost the ability to cast while moving. Blizzard changed their mind hardcore after Missa Pandaria, and kind of took away all casters' abilities to do stuff while moving. Except hunters, they just kind of made one of the specs have to stand still for a bit instead. So since the glyph was added in the second patch in Cataclysm, and then removed in the third patch in Mist of Pandaria, it was only in the game for about one and a fourth expansions, give or take. I'm not doing actual math on this since this is the only ability on this list which was added and removed mid-expansions. And at number 8, we have Clash, a Brewmaster Monk ability. This ability, added with the Monk class when they were introduced to the game, simply allowed the Monk to charge a target while also death-gripping the target to their location, and then they would meet like halfway and then stun everything else around them at the point of impact. So it was half a charge, half a pull, and was an excellent tool for Monks to give them even more maneuverability as they were one of the most mobile classes in the game at the time. However, with the shift in Warlords of Draenor to remove a ton of class maneuverability and CC, Clash kind of hit the cutting room floor because it was both of those things. It could be considered a gap closer and a CC, because that's exactly what it was. So this ability only existed in the game for one expansion. Now, just like Void Tendrils, it wasn't really causing any problems, but that's because it was Mista Pandaria and everyone was broken. Currently, Blizzard has plans on returning Clash to the game in Shadowlands, as monks have the ability on the beta, and it's only a slightly nerfed version of its Mista Pandaria counterpart. As it still basically does the exact same thing, it no longer has an AoE stun component to it like it used to, instead it roots all targets that are nearby when you clash with your target. And at number 7, we have Symbiosis. This is a druid ability that only existed in Mista Pandaria, you might be seeing a theme here with all of these removed abilities, and was only in the game for one expansion. And I don't think I've ever seen an ability balanced and fixed and tuned as much as Symbiosis, despite the fact that it was only around for a single expansion. Because what it did was probably more than any other ability in the game's history. Essentially, it allowed the Druid to learn one of 40 new abilities, depending on which class they use the ability on. I'll have a whole list of them on screen, and it would also grant the ability to another class it was used on. It was an ability that required a flowchart to make best use of, and it was a nightmare to balance. They constantly made changes and adjustments to it throughout its entire history, before just giving up on it and removing it in the very next expansion. If anything, I'm sure they wanted to remove it even faster than that, but since it was one of the hallmark abilities that Druids were supposed to obtain with that new expansion, they were probably obligated to stick it out until the end of the expansion. This one was definitely removed because of balancing nightmares, and not because it was overpowered. I'm sure most groups thought it was just a fun, neat little thing druids could do that most people never really bothered with. It didn't really impact world first races that much, and since everything else was broken in PvP in that expansion, it didn't really stand out on that front either. Now, I actually bring this ability up a lot in other videos that talk about removed abilities, because this ability was so unique that it just kind of gets brought up a lot in these kinds of things. And at number 6, we have Gladiator's Resolve. This was a town that only existed for one expansion in Warlords of Draenor, 
and basically gave Prot Warriors a new stance called Gladiator Stance, which increased the damage reduction of their defensive stance by 5% if they wanted some use of it outside of its new Gladiator Stance. But while in Gladiator Stance, which replaced Battle Stance, it increased their damage by 5%, gave them a 50% increase to their mastery, and replaced their shield with a Shield Charge ability. And there was also a little caveat to the ability where you could not change into or out of the stance during combat. So if you picked Gladiator Stance, you were stuck in it. So why was this ability removed? Well, it essentially gave Protection Warriors two specs within a spec, in the same way that Feral Druids used to work before they were split into two separate specs, Guardian and Feral for their tank and DPS builds. For Protection Warriors, there was the normal Defensive Stance build, and then the Gladiator Stance build, which did more damage, but it wasn't supposed to be competitive with a pure damage build, even though with the right gear and theory crafting, it could do pretty well for itself. And a lot of people loved the Gladiator Stance, as it was essentially providing a force spec to Warriors. But in Legion, they were removing stances from the game, and it was a nightmare to balance. So instead of trying to incorporate it into the game as a force spec like they did with Druids, they just kind of got rid of it, since it wasn't really that different anyway. And at number 5, we have Dematerialize, a monk passive ability which only existed in the game for one expansion in Mista Pandaria. And what this ability did was when you were stunned, you would phase out of existence temporarily for 2 seconds, causing attacks to miss you on a 10 second cooldown. And what this essentially meant was a monk was all but immune to abilities for 2 seconds after they got stunned, which kind of made them softly immune to stuns as in PvP situations, you would generally dump all of your damage onto a target as soon as they got CC'd. And it would be very difficult to remember that you had to hold back on Monk specifically for 2 seconds after a stun took place, so that all of your cooldowns wouldn't miss. It was such a good passive ability that it was changed pretty quickly within the expansion, and given all kinds of nerfs before they just removed it from the game completely as soon as they could in the next expansion. And it's probably one of the strongest passive abilities that has ever been added to the game because of just how huge being immune to attacks for 2 seconds after being stunned is, since that's one of the main ways people crowd control someone before laying in heavy damage. And at number 4, we have Prismatic Crystal, a mage town that only existed for one expansion in Warlords of Draenor. What this ability did was on a cooldown you could place a crystal on the floor next to a target, and then you could attack it for 12 seconds. Every time you attack the crystal, it would pulse the damage to everything around the crystal for exactly the amount of damage you put into it, and it would also increase the damage dealt to the crystal, so it could essentially turn all of your abilities into an AoE for 12 seconds. Now, funny thing about the crystal, it replicated all of the damage you dealt, including the damage from trinkets. So, towards the end of the expansion, mages were able to use this AoE trinket called the Prophecy of Fear, which would put debuffs on the target for 10 seconds that would pulse AoE damage every time you dealt damage to the target that had the debuff. So. If an arcane mage just pumped a whole bunch of arcane missiles that proc the hell out of that trinket, it would deal its AoE damage around the crystal, and then deal the damage again from the crystal itself replicating the damage, which essentially allowed them to double up on the trinket's damage, and allowed groups of mages to kill bosses in under 30 seconds at the end of the expansion, when they kind of overgeared the stuff anyway. And the crystal wasn't a very well-liked talent. It was good, and kind of overpowered if you optimize for it, but it was kind of clunky to use and required a target to be near it for 12 seconds to get the full benefit out of it. So not too many people were super sad to see it go away when it was removed in the very next expansion so they no longer had to try to balance it. 
Honestly, they could kind of balance it pretty easily by just allowing only mage abilities to work on it, or only certain kinds of abilities to be transferred through, similar to how Atonement works for Dispriests. And at number 3, we have Aspect of the Fox, version 2.0, which was added to the game in Warlords of Draenor in one of the earliest patches, before being removed two patches later in 6.2. Now, Amplify Magic also makes a spot on the list, since it kind of fit in the same theme as Aspect of the Fox. You see, in Warlords of Draenor, they wanted to give a couple of the pure DPS classes utility inside of the raid in the form of raid-wide cooldowns. So, what they did for mages and hunters was give them two abilities that they no longer had and retool them to work in a way similar to how they used to work when they were part of their classes. Aspect of the Fox was the aspect hunters used to have that would allow them to cast while moving before they just let them cast while moving baseline and kind of remove the idea of aspect dancing from the game. And Amplify Magic was a very niche ability that mages could cast on people that would increase the amount of healing they received, but also increase the amount of magic damage they took. So, what the new raid-wide ability hunters received did was, on a 3-minute cooldown, it would allow everyone in the raid to cast while moving for 6 seconds. And for mages, on a 2-minute cooldown, it would increase the healing everyone in the raid received by 10% for 6 seconds. And these are both good effects. So, why were they removed from the game? Well, for two reasons. For one, hunters and mages didn't like using them. They didn't play those classes in order to give the raid buffs. They wanted to just focus on dealing damage, and the abilities didn't increase their damage at all. They were helpful to the raid, sure, but they weren't exactly excited about being able to use them. And for two, Aspect of the Fox was really strong. It allowed raiders to kind of trivialize certain mechanics by allowing all of the casters and healers to move for that incredibly limited time duration. Sure, Amplify Magic was good too, it's always nice to have extra healing, but the ability to give everyone in the raid movement while casting was kind of broken. And since players didn't really like using the ability anyway, they just kind of removed them rather than try to rebalance them to something that wasn't game-breaking. And Amplify Magic just kind of got taken down alongside Aspect of the Fox, even though it wasn't as broken. So, while technically these two abilities did exist in the game for a long time beforehand, they were essentially two brand new abilities added to the game that were just given the names of old abilities that used to exist. So, they definitely count for this list, and only existed in the game for two patches. And at number two, we have Blood Fear, a warlock town that only existed in early MOP for two patches. This ability was in the game for a slightly shorter amount of time than Aspect of the Fox, which is why it gets a higher spot, despite them both technically being in the game for two patches each. You see, what this ability did was it would replace the Warlock Fear ability with a new ability called Blood Fear, which basically did the exact same thing. It would fear a target for 20 seconds. However, with two differences, it had a 5 second cooldown, where the original Fear had no cooldown, and it was instant cast, instead of having a cast time. And the fact that this version of Fear was instant cast was kind of broken. Of course this ability existed in Mista Pandaria. This ability is kind of the hallmark of how crazy PvP was in that expansion, where they thought giving Warlocks an instant Fear was an okay thing to do. Here's the thing about spammable CCs with no cooldowns, they're kind of balanced around the counterplay of that cast time, and the fact that they have diminishing returns. So, with a cast time, there is the opportunity to play around it by running behind a pillar, or just interrupting the ability. And even then, those abilities are super strong, and historically classes that have spammable CCs 
Like Warlocks and Mages have seen tons of play in Arena and other PvP because of how strong those things are. So if you take an already strong ability like Fear and make it even stronger by removing the only counterplay option you have to it, then what you have is one of the most broken CCs in the game's history, which is called Blood Fear. Not THE most broken, mind you, that would still probably be Glyph of Death and Decay, the glyph that early Wrath Death Knights used to have, but definitely on the same scale. Basically, the ability was so strong that it was just removed from the game in the middle of the expansion that had the most amount of CC out of any expansion, and you know something is broken when it's considered too strong for Mista Pandaria PvP. So, when they removed the ability from the game, they replaced it with an ability called Blood Horror, which would cast a debuff on yourself, which would incapacitate the next target that hit the Warlock with a melee attack for 4 seconds. So nowhere near as good as the Broken Blood Fear, and Blizzard went very far in the other direction, of not allowing any classes to have instant cast CCs without long cooldowns in the future. And at number 1, we have Shadow of Death, a Death Knight talented ability from early Wrath of the Lich King, which was only in the game for a single patch. Definitely the shortest amount of time an ability was removed for being too powerful. So, what did the ability do? Well, if the Death Knight died, they came back to life as a ghoul for 45 seconds. And in Wrath of the Lich King, Death Knights used to have this ability to raise other party members as ghouls after they died before they were just given a normal battle res, which gave them their own little ghoul action bar and allowed them to do some decent damage for a bit. It was kind of like playing a hunter's pet with its own set of abilities and cooldowns. And since Death Knights would just gain this ability passively when they died, it allowed basically any Death Knight who took this talent to stay in the fight and keep performing raid mechanics after they normally would be dead and not doing any DPS. And it also allowed Death Knights to just tank mechanics which would normally kill the raid, because they can come back as ghouls and help out anyway. It also worked in arenas for some reason, where Death Knights were already the most powerful class ever added to the game. And if you did manage to kill the overpowered early Wrath Death Knight, they came back as a ghoul for 45 seconds to finish you off anyway. So the ability was very powerful, so they actually nerfed it mid-patch to reduce the duration from 45 seconds to 25 seconds, before then just removing the ability with the first major patch in 3.1. They also nerfed a whole bunch of the other Death Knight abilities because they were very overpowered in early Wrath. But most of the abilities still stayed in the game in just nerfed versions. Shadow of Death was one of the ones that was just straight up removed rather than trying to balance out an ability that allowed them to self-res every time they died without an incredibly long cooldown like Reincarnation. So for being in the game for only one patch and being removed for being powerful, as there have been other abilities that only existed in the game for the single patch that just weren't as good, this is why Shadow of Death takes the number one spot on this list.
She followed a light that shone bright in the sky. Never before had she seen such a twinkling up high of a soul that caused all another to shake and the demons to pause in its way.
Hey guys, what's up? Mad Season here, back with another video for you. So, Shadowlands is on the horizon, and I wanted to make a casual what I want from the expansion, and what I think we'll get from the expansion video here. And just general news, since there's been some big changes since I made that preview video. So, like many others, I got the chance to actually play the beta, and get a good and basic feel of what the expansion is looking to be like. And in the effort of constructiveness, I wanted to start with the good, and what I like, and what I'm looking forward to. First is recently we had quite the bombshell dropped on us. The expansion has been delayed. Did you know that the last time that this happened was back during the Burning Crusade in 2007? It's a good call in my opinion. If you saw my Shadowlands preview or if you've just played the beta yourself, you know that it was not ready for release. Lots of bugs and issues with the first raid. Covenants are still getting big changes, so they're taking a little more time with it, which is good. It shows integrity, and hopefully will result in a much smoother launch. So there's a lot to unpack here in terms of features. In no particular order, let's just start with Torghast. Torghast I enjoyed, I will say. I don't think it's the hallmark feature of the expansion. Like when Shadowlands is over, I don't think people will define it by Torghast, I should say. That'll probably go to Covenants, which we'll talk about in a bit. It's fun in the sense that the runs are unique depending on what powers you happen to get. I think you can compare Torghast to Island Expeditions in a lot of ways. The wings you run are rotated weekly, and the mobs you get are mostly random. The issue with Island Expeditions though is that the main thing that they were banking on, which was that each run was a different experience, wasn't really true. I mean, it was technically true, but it didn't really feel that way because each map basically boiled down to rush to get X Azerite before the enemy team. They tried to circumvent this mid-expansion by introducing some features such as those extractor machines that you had to defend, but ultimately it got pretty repetitive. With Torghast though, since the layout is different each time and the abilities are so substantial, to me it does feel like there's more variety between each run. If you've ever played Diablo 3 and their Great Rift system, it's similar in a lot of ways, but instead of having a specific build and legendaries for every rift, each rift you choose your affixes out of a random selection of three per node. The only thing I don't care for, at least at this point, is the fact that it's just another weekly thing. These days, as you know, I don't really have a high tolerance for daily and weekly timers, but admittedly, I'm not really sure how they would make it work without one. If they don't have some sort of limit, it would be too strong of a method to gear up, so they'd have to nerf the gear to the point to where it's just irrelevant. That's a big catch with any new feature, really. And you saw this issue with island expeditions in BFA since they were spammable and they always gave you that Azerite. You have to find a balance of making the rewards relevant enough to warrant doing the activity, and at the same time you have to limit it so it's not too overpowered. But if you do that too much, you have a situation like BFA where you have 30 daily and weekly activities to do, and it can just get overwhelming. I have 600 videos about the game and I'm telling you guys, the most common feedback I get about BFA is, I hit the max level, and I got completely overwhelmed by these daily and weekly timers that I just quit. So what I want, or rather what I don't want for Shadowlands, is the same fate. Right now, honestly, it's not too bad. This is a list that I've tracked down, and a lot of them you can do two birds with one stone. However, I think if they get into this ritual of adding a couple new reputations per patch, or new daily and weekly systems like they did with BFA, it's gonna send them down the same path, and it's gonna burn people out. I was thinking, and I wanted to run this by you guys, but I think it would be a nice experiment where instead of having a bunch of these new flashy features like Torghast, instead to put more time and focus into making a better base game. Maybe instead of 8 dungeons have 12, or maybe an extra raid tier even, or a few more zones. 
I think BFA is proof that a bunch of flashy features don't necessarily make for a good expansion, and I think Classic shows that there's a market for having a very basic MMO that's just fun to play. The Ma has also seen a change since I last covered it. As you know, if you saw my Shadowlands preview, this is the max level zone that has that daily meter where the Jailer gets more and more upset the more time you spend in the zone, and you eventually get kicked out. Previously, it was very sandbox. You just sort of wandered around and killed rares, and now it looks like they're trying to add a bit more direction to it with events that pop up periodically. To me though, the Ma is kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I'm sure it'll be important to gear up your character, but to me it's just not really as big of a focus they're making it out to be. It's pretty much a max level zone with rares and treasures that you've seen a hundred times, except you essentially have a timer imposed on you to limit your gameplay within the zone. So for me, I'm more interested in the main features, such as legendaries, so let's talk about those. I like the legendaries. I liked them in Legion too. It's just that at first, the method of acquiring them was pretty frustrating. They changed it like a hundred times over from the launch of Legion to its final state, but early on they were incredibly rare, so much so that people were like coming up with conspiracies that streamers had a higher drop chance to drive expansion sales. That was awesome. But putting that method of acquisition aside, I've always been a fan of them because I'm always a fan of making the loot more interesting. As you know, I've been very vocal about the main stat, stamina, secondary 1, and secondary 2 issue that they have going on, so seeing anything other than that is like a breath of fresh air. Now we just need to get those tier sets back. But the legendary system itself is one of the more exciting features for me, because I'm all about that character customization. Getting back on subject here though, next up we have Covenants. And who boy, is this a controversial subject right now, I'll tell you what. I actually have a dedicated video planned for Covenant specifically, so I don't want to go too crazy with this quite yet, but my thoughts are basically, I'm for having some measure of difficulty or time investment in switching Covenants. The main issue people have here though, is that they're quite substantial, because they have abilities and buffs tied to them, and there's a setback in switching between them. You also have the Renown system, which you build with these covenants over time to unlock upgrades, and this is reset when you switch, and furthermore, switching to a covenant you've previously left requires a couple of weekly quests. To me, the way I look at it is that players, if they choose, at any point with the click of a button, they can change their race, they can change their faction, and they can change their spec. They can change just about anything with their character, in fact. You ever wonder why we have four stats today? It's because it's hard to switch from healer to DPS when all of your gear has mana per 5 and spirit, and it's hard to switch from melee DPS to healer when all of your gear has attack power and armor penetration. The entire game is set up in such a way that players have extreme control and versatility with what they want their characters to be, to the point that it's fundamentally detrimental to the RPG genre. Character progression and investment is so important for RPGs, I can't stress it enough. But since everything is now easily reversible, you lose that investment, and all solutions I've seen for Covenants basically boil it down to another row of talents. From what I've seen, people either want A, to be able to switch Covenants at any point with no hindrance, or B, they want the abilities and soul binding detached from them. To me, if you do that, there's basically no point to them though. The whole idea of Covenants, from what I gathered, is during leveling, you're introduced to each one, and at max level, you have to make a tough choice in siding with one. They want some weight in that choice, so removing that weight defeats the whole purpose. There are concerns with balance, which are definitely warranted. I saw Preach's video and he was showing Covenant abilities making up like 40% of a certain spec's damage. That's not good obviously, and they need to do better there. 
Ideally though, I think the best way it would work out is that, okay, this ability is best for Mythic Plus. That's what I care about, so that's what I want to excel in. Or maybe this is like the PvP Covenant for Shamans. Or maybe this one generally is best for raiding. I think for me, that's the ideal system, because you sort of have to pick and choose what you specialize in, and you're not the best at everything. Sort of like an RPG, huh? But the only question is if they can get that balance right. If they can, I think Covenants are fine as they are now, but that's a big if, obviously. I think one thing they should definitely change, though, is the method in switching. Right now, it's set up in such a way that you have to complete two weekly quests to switch. I think it should be time-consuming, but something you can do on your own time, so you can just say, hey, okay, I'm gonna grind this out. Again, this just gets into that issue of these arbitrary daily and weekly timers that just dominate the game. So again, this whole Covenant debacle is really spicy. These are my initial thoughts though. I might go into more detail later, but it's not something to lose sleep over, so don't worry about it too much. That's about it though, at least for all of the major stuff I think. In summary, I think it has good potential. Right now, the make it or break it feature for most people seems to be Covenants, so we'll just have to wait and see how they change, if at all, in the coming weeks as we prepare for release. Agree or disagree? I hope you found the video interesting or informative. Here's hoping for the best with Shadowlands. I'm going into it optimistically, but still pretty guarded. Ultimately, I hope it's good, and we get two years of good times for everyone. But other than that, thanks for watching the video, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Farewell for now, mortals. We hope you enjoyed today's video. See you again soon. So with this, I want to leave you to go into the Shadowlands, but not without, as always, thanking our contributors. For this show, we have Blizzard, Noble87, Carvo350, Soso Breezy, Hero Maritex, Charm, and Mad Season Show. As always, I'd like to thank Patty Madsen as well for providing the intro and outro. I'm not going to leave you though without one last segment by Noble, and that is some upcoming and recently released lore stuff that he's going to tell you about something that you might have missed, as he so rightfully says. So with that said, we'll see each other on the other side of the veil. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, and I hope to see you soon. Bye everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at corpsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at corpsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash radio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Cops Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. 
Hello, everyone. There's been a couple of lore things that they released lately, which might have slipped your attention. So I figured to just drop them all into one video and let you know what's been released. First up, there's the reprint of Rise of the Horde and Lord of the Clans, this time in an illustrated novel. It's quite a beefy book with a beautiful bound hardcover. The bigger size, it allows for bigger lettering, while the stories, they're not new, of course. Rise of the Horde and Lord of the Clans, written by Christy Golden. They've been out for quite a while now. The first one, it talks about the formation of the First Horde, how these scattered clans were manipulated to come together under one banner, its corruption, which would lead to the invasion of Azeroth. That story is then continued in The Last Guardian, followed by Tides of Darkness and Beyond the Dark Portal. These books are separate, so if you want the full experience, you have to pick up those as well. Well worth it in my opinion, as it's quite the foundation of Warcraft lore. Or you can just stick with this one and skip right into Lord of the Clans. To this day, it is still my favorite novel, as it talks about the rise of Thrall's Horde, the beginning of the one that so many eventually joined in classic World of Warcraft. As a bonus, this is an illustrated novel, but to make sure that, you know, prevent any disappointments, the pictures that they added, they're not just for this book. Some have already been used in the Chronicles, some have been used for Hearthstone artwork, stuff like that, but they do add a bit to the experience. And all in all, I'm really happy to add it to my collection. Tether by Torchlight is a new short story up on the WoW website, also written by Christy Golden. In-game and in the novel Shadows Rising, we can see and we can read that there's a relationship building between Flynn Fairwind and Matthias Shaw. Tether by Torchlight is like a prelude for exploring Azeroth. It sets up the journey by having these two go to Duskwood on a quest for adventure and treasure. Stumbling upon a dark necromantic plot to corrupt the Torch of the Holy Flame. A powerful artifact that adventurers created and has been used to dispel dark enchantments and keep the undead docile within their cemetery. That artifact has been stolen, but Flynn and Shaw are able to save the day. Not before the necromancer can gloat though, telling Shaw that dark wings are going to take away all that you hold most dear. The undead and those dabbling in its dark necromantic powers, they can feel in their bones that something's coming, something is on its way. Even they can feel the excitement of a brand new expansion. Flynn and Shaw, they purify the torch in the moonwell at Twilight Grove, which fixes the problems at Duskwood, but it does make the Spymaster wonder about all the other powerful artifacts scattered across the world. Many of them, mercifully, they're safely locked away. Occasionally, the king sends Shaw to check up on them, since the world is currently about as quiet as Azeroth is likely to get. Now would be a perfect time for him to take a thorough inspection trip, catalog everything they know about, and at his side, he couldn't have a better, more trustworthy and caring travel companion than Flynn Fairwinds. That journey is described in World of Warcraft exploring Azeroth. From the shining towers of Silvermoon, to the sulfurous Blackrock Mountain, to the white stone castles of Stormwinds, the Eastern Kingdoms are vast and full of wonder. Every corner of the majestic isle contains countless stories, treasures, and more than a few secrets that some would prefer to stay buried. Follow Spymaster Matthias Shaw and Captain Flynn Fairwind on an expedition across the Eastern Kingdoms for King and Country as they chronicle its history and catalog the weapons, armor, and powers untold that are scattered across this sprawling dominion. Exploring Azeroth, the Eastern Kingdoms, is your first step on a truly remarkable journey across the beloved lands of Azeroth.
Now, for some reason, this book was delayed into December, but I have been lucky enough to get an early copy. The cool part about the story is that you get to see the world of Azeroth described by someone that actually lives inside of it. Usually, we get somewhat of a top-down view on the events that happen. But now, you get an inside look as to how someone like Shaw or how Flynn, how they would observe these crazy events that we play through. Now, I won't go into spoilers, of course, but there might be one thing in it that could mean the world for the future story of Warcraft. Or it, it could mean nothing at all. Time is going to tell. Would recommend to pick it up if you're curious at a new view at the world. And of course, if you love to follow Shaw and Flynn on their adventures. And the last thing on the list, that would be We Ride Forth, a short story written by Robert Brooks. Not a stranger to writing for the Warcraft universe, and the We Ride Forth short story, it does not disappoint. With all the things that we discussed today, I'll put some links in the description down below so you can check it out for yourself. Would highly recommend it. The short story, it, it answers some questions we had about the confrontation between Bolvar and Sylvanas. Questions like, why weren't the recently Death Knights there? Where did they even come from? How come Bolvar was just picked up and carried away by the horsemen? They've actually got some solid reasons for that. Not to mention the insight that you get into the minds of the four horsemen. What does it mean to be resurrected and serve the Lich King? To break your bonds and then ally with Bolvar again, back in Legion. I always love it when these gaps in the story get filled up. I would love it if we get like an audio drama to cover the time that our leaders are now spending in the Maw. Get more details on what it's like to be in Warcraft's hell. But time is going to tell, I suppose. Right now, you're up to speed on some of the recent released lore things. Again, links are down below in the description. And it's almost release day, everybody. It is almost time to unleash the madness of the Shadowlands. My schedule for December is looking deliciously full. I can't wait to get started. But for now, thank you very much for watching, everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, see ya! Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.